Jeremiah chapter 32. And uh, if you're new with us today, it's good to know that we've been walking through the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter by chapter, and today we're covering two chapters. What we're doing is getting a big, broad overview as to what the point of Jeremiah is, a book that was written by a prophet, a compilation of the prophet's writings that, were, uh, that are a couple thousand years old, that we can learn from even today, that are as relevant today as they were back then. So with that said, let's read a little selection here from Jeremiah chapter 32. So in your Bibles, it's going to help, to fo- help you to follow along this morning if you have a copy in front of you. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the, king, the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Let's skip down to verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, By my field that is at Anamoth. Anathoth, I'm sorry. For the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then, verse 8, Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and I weighed out Money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, weighed the money on scales, and then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Now from verse 16 on through the end of the chapter, we see a conversation between Jeremiah and God. Essentially, Jeremiah is repeating a lot of what we've seen earlier in the book of Jeremiah, the issue of punishment, the issue of uh, God's goodwill that he he has seen. And he's essentially asking God, why am I buying this field? And then God responds, and we're going to walk through this in just a minute here, but God responds, and what God essentially says is, I can do whatever I can do. I can do whatever I want to do. All power belongs to me. And we see a whole bunch of I wills. God says, I will bring you back. I will restore you. I will restore the land. And we see the foundation of this is in God's power. 
Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into this fairly strange text about Jeremiah buying a field, all right? Father, we ask that you help us this morning as we study this chapter. We ask that as we do so, that you would open our eyes, that we might see that this is not just some old, ancient, dusty text, irrelevant for us today, but this is your living word. And we pray that you would use it to cut us, to open us up to Jesus Christ so that we might experience him through your word. Let us hear Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning under this title, Good News in Bad Times. Good News in Bad Times. Now, as we saw here, we have a text this morning in front of us about Jeremiah, who's a prophet, buying a field. This isn't like the most exciting text that we're going to use to pull out and and preach This isn't a text that if some preacher is flipping through the Bible thinking, what is a good text that I could bring before my people? I don't think most preachers would stop here and say, let me preach about Jeremiah buying a field. But I want you to see something here that is actually extremely relevant for us today. And that's why I'm putting it under this theme, good news in bad times. But first, let's get into the setting here. Imagine, the year is 587. We fast-forwarded a few years in our narrative. Jeremiah is sitting in prison. Why is Jeremiah in prison? Well, that's the irony we see in verses 5 through 7. The irony is that he's locked up in prison in the king's courtyard because he said Babylon is going to attack us. And here, while he's in prison for saying that, what's happening? Babylon is besieging Jerusalem. If we could sit with Jeremiah for a moment and sort of see what he sees and hear what he hears and smell what he smells, things would be different. We would see the the wall uh, possibly coming down in Jerusalem, hearing cries of people slaughtered outside of the walls, maybe smelling the smoke of fields that are burning. All that they know currently in this moment being destroyed. I brought with me something today that you probably have never seen before. It's called a newspaper. They used to use these back in the day. I think uh, me and David Scott still read the newspaper, right? Did you read the newspaper this morning? All right. Um, So this is yesterday's paper. And I'm looking at yesterday's paper, and what I see is a lot of cause for despair. So on the front page, there's this issue of uh, the opioid crisis. They're having a meeting on it. Right underneath that is another sexual misconduct case. Underneath that we see political drama. Increased pollution on the bay. Problematic. 
we open the front page here. Continued story of the opioid crisis. Here we go. City adds traffic camera locations. That's reason for despair. It says 37 more spots. I see uh, a crash on the beltway. Looks pretty bad. And here's a funeral for the this, this seven-year-old girl that was killed in Baltimore a couple weeks ago. Hundreds of mourners honor the city's seven-year-old shooting victim, victim. That's just on the front page. That's just as we open the newspaper. Like what we see is plenty of reason in our world for despair. So before we just say, well, what ha- is happening that has nothing to do with us today, let's just pause and let's recognize that we too have some despair and chaos and violence in our world. Now, in Jeremiah's world, at the time of this writing, the despair that those citizens of Jerusalem would have been facing was nothing else than the Babylonian invasion. And before their eyes, they're watching the city and the citizens of the city be destroyed. Now, then the story gets really weird. All right, that's the setting. That's the, that's the setting of it. Main character, Jeremiah. But then the story gets weird as another character shows up, and his name is Cousin Hanamel. Everybody say Hanamel. This is cousin of Jeremiah, and in order to understand what's going on here, you've got to know a little bit something about history. So in the ancient world in Israel, there was what was called redemption rights. So if a property became available, let's say through debt, mortgage that couldn't be paid, for maybe through death, uh, in order to save that property, the distant relatives were essentially required, at the very least they had the option, but it was a very strong option, there was an expectation that they would buy out the land and bail out their relative. And this was called redemption. So evidently, we don't know the backstory, but Jeremiah's uncle has a piece of land, a field, that for some reason has, is, is open. It's, it's maybe a bad mortgage. We don't know what the story is. But Jeremiah is a relative of this guy, and he is, for whatever reason, however they structured it, first in line to buy the field, to pay the redemption price for the field and get his uncle or his cousin out of some problems. So his cousin comes in this moment. This is really weird. He's like locked up. I mean, think about how inconsiderate this is for a moment. Jeremiah is locked up. Jerusalem is at some level of being besieged. And his cousin says, let me go visit Jeremiah to tell him that he needs to buy this property. And so he shows up and he, and, and he says, hey, uh, the property's available, you are the, uh, have the redemption rights, you are to buy the property. Now keep in mind, the property is probably being trampled on by Babylonian guards. The property is probably currently being burned up. Like his cousin is really manipulative here, I think, and he's trying to make a quick dollar. As the city is imploding. 
And so Jeremiah buys the property. Well, why does Jeremiah buy the property? It's because just before this takes place, God predicts to Jeremiah that this is going to happen. God says exactly what's going to happen, and I want you to buy the property, and then that very same thing happens. So Jeremiah gives him 17 shekels for the field. Now, 17 shekels was a pretty cheap price for a field. It's probably all Jeremiah had. Remember, he's in jail. He probably doesn't have much money. And so he gives to his cousin whatever left he has. The cousin is making a dollar. The property's probably worthless at this point. Like, this is a bad investment for Jeremiah, right? This is a good deal for his cousin who's walking away with 17 shekels of silver. But the point is, Jeremiah buys this property this field from his cousin. And then we enter a third character, Baruch. Baruch comes onto the scene and Jeremiah, as Jeremiah goes to him in verse 10. And Jeremiah takes the deed which has been bought for, signed in front of witnesses, sealed. He takes the deed and he gives it to Baruch and he says, Baruch, put this in a jar, in a safe place. Maybe similar to a safe for us today. A place where it's going to last for a very long time. Why? What's the point? Well, imagine World War III hit and Baltimore is under siege. And while Baltimore is being attacked, Eric goes down and buys Camden Yards for 500 bucks while Camden Yards is burning. It's worthless at this point. There's no baseball team anymore. There's no Baltimore. We're all moving out. It's over. And he buys, he, pays, he gives, who owns Camden Yards right now? I don't even know. Is it the owner of the Orioles? Carde, you do? So he gives Carde 500 bucks for the deed of Camden Yards. And then Eric takes that deed and he sticks it in a safe and he hides it. What Eric is saying is, he's making a statement. He's saying, one day, we're coming back here. One day, Camden Yards is going to be rebuilt. And I'm going to open my safe and this deed is going to matter. I'm going to open my safe and uh, you're going to see I'm going to own Camden Yards. This, this is some good news in the middle of bad times for the people of Jerusalem. What the statement Jeremiah or God is making through Jeremiah is that the people are going to come back and life is going to return to normal sort of patterns of buying and selling in peace. Now, like I said earlier, in verses 17 through 44, we see this conversation then after this event between God and Jeremiah. First, Jeremiah talks in verses 17 through 25, and then God responds in verses 26 through the end of the chapter. Let me just give you a quick overview here. In Jeremiah's question that he asks God, there's essentially three parts. First, he affirms God's power. Oh, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your own great power. Nothing is impossible for you, is what he says. 
He goes on to remember God's goodwill for Israel in times past. We remember what you did in Egypt. We remember the good things that you've done in the past. But then he brings it to current day, this current day situation, and he says, but we are now in a time of punishment. Meaning the goodwill is over. We are experiencing your judgment. And so the question essentially comes in verse 25, why am I buying a field? What is the purpose of this if we are in punishment? So God responds. Now the way God responds is what I want to point out. First, God also affirms His own power. He essentially says, you are right. I have all power. I can do whatever I choose to do. God also affirms that he is punishing Israel. But he flips it around. Instead of saying, I have shown you goodwill, now I'm punishing you, what God says to Jeremiah is, I'm punishing you, but don't think the goodwill is over. There is still goodwill to come. And so what God shows Jeremiah is this beautiful truth that we've been seeing over and over in this book, and that is for them in their context that they are going to come back to the land, that God is still going to be good to his people, that his good deeds toward his people is not over. He's going to continue to show uh, goodwill toward them and providence and shower them in all good gifts. Now, 33, chapter 33 essentially repeats everything that's been said and reaffirms these things. Question, who is this story for? Like, as we read these things, who was this for? Well, on one hand, it's for them then, correct? Like, there's a sense in which this was for the guards in the courtyard. Like, imagine as they watch this deal take place, and they're maybe trying to defend the palace. It's for them. This is a bold statement that he's making to the citizens of Jerusalem. During these bad times that we're facing as Babylon is coming against us and destroying us, he's saying we've got good news. But it's not just for them then. Because what, what does the land signify? Who is the land for in the Bible? Well, all the way back in Genesis, what we see is that the covenant that God made with His people was a covenant that would eventually bless all peoples all over the world. In the Psalms, it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Meaning it's not just this little spot of land over in Palestine that is the Lord's, but the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. In Matthew chapter 5, we see that the meek will inherit the earth. You see, the land is the earth. The land that God is promising His people from the beginning is the whole earth. And so now let's kind of fast forward to 2018. We're still living in a land that is clearly being attacked by the enemy. We're still living in a land that is under siege. 
We're, we're living in a land where we've got opioid crisis and we've got mass incarceration and global poverty and all of these sort of things that can easily lead us to confusion and to despair. But we've got good news in bad times. The, the, the call for us this morning is to hear these words. It's not over. There is still a land that is to come. The fullness of this promise has yet to be realized. We're still waiting for God to fulfill the promise that He's making, the fullness of this promise that He's making to His people here in Jeremiah. My concern for us this morning is for our joy. Because it is so easy for us to live in this world and to walk around as if we are the most miserable group of people that has ever existed. Like we got some, maybe some political problems and, and you, you act like your hope lost. Or you lose a friend or a loved one and you act like you've lost your hope. Or you think of the problems of poverty and, and people dying of hunger and starvation and, and then we walk around acting as if our hope is starving. Like, it's really easy to be in Baltimore City to try to do good, to try to be people of Jesus Christ, to be His hands and feet, to be loving people, and then to become so discouraged in ministry. And to, and to act like Baltimore City was our hope. Now, if we don't have hope, we don't have any joy. But if we have hope, we then can have what? Joy. Even in the midst of bad times. The world, where's that newspaper? The world is a world of bad news. You can hang on to it. You can keep it. You've never had one before. Stick it somewhere safe. The, the world is, is a world of bad news. But friends, listen, we are a good news people. In a bad news world. What does that look like? Well, let me talk through a couple points here as to what that looks like. First, there's a couple things that we need to know. And then there's a couple ways that we need to be acting and believing together. First, first we need to know that there is a land and it will come. There is a land and it will come. Back in the day, my dad really liked this movie called Field of Dreams. It's about a dude who built this amazing baseball stadium in the middle of a cornfield. For what purpose? We don't know. He's just building this huge, amazing baseball stadium for no apparent purpose, but there's this little voice that says, if you build it, he will come. The, 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 the better part of the movie is toward the end when his dad comes out on the baseball field. There's a sense in which the, the, the man is, is doing something. He's 
building something. But there's a greater realization. There's something better that is to come than just a baseball field. There's a sense in which Jeremiah does something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He buys a land, bad investment. Yet there's a sense in which he's doing something that has a much greater, better realization than just simply a field. What is that realization? Friends, I'm telling you, it's the whole world. Did you hear what Miss Bonita read this morning out of Revelation? Revelation chapter 21. I did not see a temple in that city because the Lamb is there. There's no sun or moon because the glory of God gives it light. In chapter 22, it says, The angel showed me the river of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops, yielding fruit every month. The leaves... Listen to this. The leaves of the tree are healing for the nations. That means no more war. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will not see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. They will, there will be no more light. Or night, I'm sorry. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. There is a land that is to come, and that land is this, this earth. It's a renewed earth when Jesus comes back and renews us with a glorified body and renews the whole world, and we live together with Him for all eternity on the earth. That is our hope. Secondly, the cost for this was great, but it's been paid. Dwight Eisenhower once said, there are no victories at discount prices. Victory is costly. Redemption costs. What was the redemption price for the field that Jeremiah bought? It was 17 shekels of silver. What is the redemption price for the whole earth? What price does Jesus pay for us to be the renewed people of God living in the land? That 17 shekels was a small little hint at a bigger price that is to come and that is to be paid. The cost is death. The cost is taking on the curse of sin that Adam and Eve brought into this world. The cost is taking on the judgment of God. The cost that Jesus paid is absolutely tremendous, and He paid it all as He hung on the cross as He took the curse on Himself, as it buried Him, three days later rising from the dead, He paid it all. His resurrection tells us the price has been paid. It's over. He's not in the grave anymore. The work is finished. See, some people, some Christians, walk around acting as if 
Jesus died to give them the possibility of salvation. Like we might have this hope one day. We might have a recreated earth one day. Or I might be part of that. But I've got to pay a little bit of my own cost. Sort of like Jesus put down the down payment, but I've got to come out of my pocket and pay the rest. Has anybody ever done that for you? They say, hey, I'm going to buy you a car. And they take you to the car lot, and they put the down payment on, and you end up with the monthly payment. That's the way a lot of people think about salvation. No, he didn't just put a down payment for you. It's not just a couple dollars he put down. It's not even the vast majority of it. It's all of it that he put down for you. He paid every penny of it. It's, it's secure, family. And this goes on to my next point that I want you to know, and that is the down payment that we've been given in the Holy Spirit is a down payment that is secure because the whole price has been paid. So this is a secure hope that we have. Jeremiah takes his deed and he puts it into a jar. And it's going to last for some years. It doesn't, it's not around anymore. Jesus pays it all and he seals a covenant in his blood. And this is not a covenant made by hand on something that the earth can create which would eventually dissolve. But this is a covenant made on the hearts of God's people between God and his people. And not only that, but in Ephesians 1 it says that the Holy Spirit is given to his people as a guarantee. Now, if God gives us His Holy Spirit as His guarantee or as His down payment, can't we be 100% confident that He's going to come through with the rest? Like, I might put a down payment on a car for you, buying a car from you, say, and I don't come through with the rest. And what happens? I lose my down payment. But if the down payment is the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, and that's the guarantee that He gives to every single believer, every Christian, is given this guarantee, let me ask you this question. Is that a down payment that God could even possibly lose? Absolutely not. Which means He will come through. He will come through. What I'm trying to point out, family, is that the hope that we have of this renewed land, of a new world, of a new creation, I think is the point of this text, and that that is the source of our joy in this world. Like for those of us who say, oh, I don't think about future things, I don't think about the world that is to come, or I don't think about Jesus coming, like that doesn't ever cross my mind. Do you realize, like, what joy do you have? Where do you, I mean, what do you think about it in regards to the future? It's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and eventually things are going to burn up, and I don't know. Well, man, you're sounding like the world. That's the way that those without hope think, that this is all there is. But Christians are people of faith. Faith is believing that which is not seen. And we are a people, then, of hope in a future glory that is to come. So how might we live? Well, first, let's not live with despair. 
Let's not live in despair. Despair is defined as the complete loss or absence of hope. The complete loss or absence of hope. Do you realize that Christians then, by definition, should not be people of despair? Because we always, no matter what's going on around us, we always have hope. There was a study that was done by a group of academics, and they discovered that in the last 5,600 years, out of all those years, there have only been 292 years of peace. During that time frame, there have been 14,351 wars that have been fought. And there are 3.5 billion people who have died in war over the last 5,000 years. Listen, our hope is not in the human ability to bring peace. I mean, we can just look at history and see we are a people of discord. We are a people of war. We're a people who battle on the inside and on the outside. And some of you might agree. Some of you might say, look, my problem is not external. It's not even the world's poverty issue. My problem is just my problems that I've got in my own life. Like, I don't even have time to read the newspaper. Things that I've got going on in my family or in my marriage or stresses at my job or fears about the future, people that I've got dying all around me. Like, we've got so many causes, including our own fear, our own shame, and our own guilt. We've got so many reasons for despair in this life. But we are not to be a people of despair. While the besiegement of the enemy is real in the world that we live in, the price has been paid. It has been signed. The the covenant has been sealed by the blood of Christ. We've been given the guarantee we have a real hope. One application for us is this. We have to get used to preaching the gospel to each other all the time. Like We can't allow each other to just remain in despair. We we, 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 We can't just hear someone complaining about the challenges and the depression and discouragement that they're going through without us offering some kind of hope. Like we're a people who minister to each other. This is why gathering is so important. This is why when we do a Sunday morning gathering, we come. Or a Wednesday night or a Sunday evening gathering, we show up. Why is it so important for us to gather together? Because what we're doing is this. When we're gathering together, we're saying we are not a people of despair. We're a people of hope. When we gather together, we're saying this is a little glimpse. It's a little practice. It's a little picture of the great hope that we have to come. What we experience here, not physically but spiritually together, is a little taste of what one day we will experience physically. And so we're not a people of despair. Secondly, instead of being a people of despair, we're a people of joy. We're a people who have joy in the midst of despair. 
a third century man was dying, and he wrote a brief note about these Christians that have arisen. And let me just read a little bit of his note. He says, it is a bad world. It's an incredibly bad world. By the way, that was about 1,700 years ago, and I think today we would still agree. It's an incredibly bad world. He says this, though, and I hope you would agree with this too. But I have discovered, in the midst of it, a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. And then he says, these people are the Christians. And I am one of them. We are a people who live in a very bad world. We are a people of good news in a world of bad news. As a result of the hope that we have to come, we have joy. The joy that we have comes not from a change of our external circumstances, but it comes through the hope that we have of change that will be. Are you tracking with me? And so then, we are a people, therefore, that, number three, declare this joy, this hope, this good news to the world of bad news. What's Jeremiah doing as he's buying this field? He's declaring something. He's making a statement about something. What's Jeremiah's goal? I think his goal is to show people in despair, in a, a world of bad news, that there is good news that is to come. And we too are to be a people who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. What do we proclaim? Well, let me say this. Jeremiah at the very core of his proclamation, is proclaiming the power of God. At the very core of it, he's saying God is able to do whatever God wants to do. When we look around and we think it is impossible, all things are possible for God. The last couple verses here in this chapter, we see 12 I wills. God says to Jeremiah, I will gather you. I will bring you back. I will make you safe. I will be their God. I will give one heart. I will make a covenant. I will not turn away. I will put fear into their hearts. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them. I will bring all promised good upon them. I will restore their fortunes. Let me ask you a question. By whose power are they going to be saved? Like Jeremiah never says, I will. He says, God will. Like too often, our Christian testimonies talk about me and my power, and what I did. I hear Christian testimonies all the time where people say things like, well, so how I became a Christian. So I started, fill in the blank. I changed my life. I went to church. I uh, 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 said a prayer. I believed some things. I did this. I did this. 
I did that. Listen, the Bible never says salvation is of Joel Kerr's. So how can my salvation testimony be about what I did? Our testimony is about God's power, not my power. Instead of just saying, I will, we say God did and God will. Amen? Because the, what, what, what we're declaring, guys, this is why just simply telling your own story is not enough. There's no power in that. This is why we declare the story of God. The Bible says the gospel has the power of God into salvation. The gospel is good news. It's good news to a bad news people of something that God has done for us. And so we declare the gospel and we see the power of God. On May 8, 1945, there was a picture taken of Times Square and everybody's out in Times Square and they're celebrating and they've got flags and they're jumping and they're shouting and they're rejoicing. Why? Yeah, we're talking about World War II, aren't we? That was the day that Europe came out victorious. We got victory in Europe. They call it VE Day. Now, let me ask you a question. What changed in Times Square, Manhattan, New York? Physically. No, I'm sorry, on May 8th, 1945. That's true, 9-11. But on May 8th, 1945, that day, nothing had changed physically. Like, they, they were going about their day in the way that they always went about their day. And all of a sudden, they're erupting in such joy and celebration that all of Times Square is flooded with people. What changed about their external circumstances in Times Square? The answer is absolutely nothing. The only thing that changed was the news that they heard. They went from bad news to good news. They were a people of despair, and now they're a people of hope. Listen, the war didn't even end until September 2nd of 1945. The war was still going on. But and imagine for a moment you were in war-torn France, and you hear this news. What's changing? You're still in war-torn France. But what's changed is the news that you've received that the war is over. Listen, my point is this. The hope that we have as Christians is not physical in this moment. It's not something we can point to and say, oh, there it is, or oh, it's over here. The hope that we have as Christians is not in something about our external circumstances all of a sudden being changed. The hope that we have is in the news that we believe. Jeremiah was in the courtyard and he's proclaiming good news. He's bringing good news into the courtyard. The question is, whose report will you believe? We are a people in a bad news world. What's different about me and a friend who has rejected God? The difference is this. I believe in this news 
this good news. And God's changed me as a result. I've experienced power on the inside from the washing of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of His power that He has brought into, his, into my life. And I have hope. The cost has been paid. The witnesses were there. It has been sealed. We've been given the guarantee. The question is, whose report will you believe? Are we going to be a people of despair who say we've lost our hope, we have no hope? Or are we going to be a people in a world of despair who say I still have my hope, and I'm looking forward to that day when my hope will be realized. And as a result, I have joy. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time that we can be in Your Word. We ask that You would use this to continually encourage us, strengthen us, and move us toward Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.